thank you all so much for coming. Welcome to Pickford Auditorium at Clara McKenna um, and Free Food for Thought, our first live podcast. Um, I'm Skip Fulcher Gordon. I'm a senior at CMC um, and I'm from Wilmette, Illinois. And I'm Melanie Wolf. I'm a junior at CMC coming from South Florida. And we just could not be happier today to sit down with Kim Sayet, who is the director of the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. So in case there are people in the audience who are not too familiar with podcasts and aren't active free foodies, just to give you some background, we started three years ago um, to get kind of the personal narratives and more in-depth stories from a lot of the ask speakers who are thinkers and political leaders and artists from around the country and world. And um, we're excited to be talking to you today. And we like to focus in on personal narratives uh, in addition to their professional lives. Um, and after this is over, um, feel free to take a look at our website. Um, it's all up there and, and listen to some old podcasts. And we'll have this one up shortly for you, too, if you want to listen to it again. So thanks so much for coming. So uh, Ms. Sayette is the first female director of the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery, overseeing a staff of 97 and a collection of 23,000 objects. Before her current appointment, Sayette was the president and CEO of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, the vice president and deputy director of the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, and the deputy and the director of corporate relations at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. She earned her master's degree in art history from Bryn Mawr College and has also studied at Melbourne University, Deakin University, and Harvard. So thank you so much for joining us, Kim. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So ever since our first podcast three years ago, a little over three years ago, we've been asking every single one of our guests this concept about inflection points or a point you felt you needed to pivot or shift something in your personal or professional mm -hmm. life. Would you mind sharing one of those points with us today? Sure. So I'll tell you the very first uh, point where I decided that I would go into art. But in fact, I hadn't really decided. It was more of a... Um, a survival tactic. So I was in high school and there was this ex expectation that you were either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. So I'm in chemistry class and I still, I don't remember the name of any of my other teachers, but Mr. Brown came up to me and said, Kim, I'm about to fail you in chemistry. <laughs> and I said, please don't fail me in chemistry. Here's a deal, right? I will never, ever, ever do chemistry again. I'll never go to a chemistry lab again. Just please don't fail me. So he said, really? You promise? I said, I absolutely promise. <laughs> So uh, he gave me a C, which I thought was pretty generous, right? And I looked around and thought, well, what am I going to do now? I'll do art. How, like, that seems super easy. Um, so the joke was kind of on me because back then you would sit in, in Australia, where I grew up, you would sit in the dark and look at slides of artworks and then you had to remember the artist, the date, uh, the title of the exhibition, and then you also had to remember what museum it was in, and they always had long German names. But it was, it was something that I really um, got excited about. The second moment was, in fact, and I think everyone who goes into the arts, and possibly when you're a writer as well or into music, you have one work of art that really changes you. For me, I was on a trip to Adelaide, and for some unknown reason, the Whitney had uh, lent their Edward Hopper uh, portrait, uh, it's actually a picture, called Soit Bleu. I don't know if anyone knows it, but just to paint you a, um, an image of what it looks like, it's a, a clown dressed in a, um, he's got clown face on, and he's looking incredibly sad. He's at a table, he's drinking, he's got a glass of whiskey on the table, he's drinking, and he's smoking a cigarette, and they're all of these sort of strange people in the background. And my existential 15-year-old self looked at this and thought, oh, I feel like that as well. Um, and so somehow there was a moment where I thought this work really touched me. And I still look at that picture all the time. And if you talk to anybody in the art world, they have a story like that about a painting or a piece of music or something that changed them. 
So I can definitely relate to feeling that way about certain speeches and other books I've, I've read that kind of set me on my path. Uh, to focus a little bit more on the same sort of era when you were in your early 20s, like many of us uh, students are in the audience, I'm curious whether there was a moment where you uh, decided to double down on those dreams and the ideas you had at 15 and 16 when you first got interested in art, or if uh, a completely new opportunity came up that made you leave behind a traditional path you'd imagine to really pursue something else? Well, the, in my family, um, in fact, I have a severely disabled brother, and I had been um, sort of uh, making money by working with um, young adults in a residential setting and um, that was kind of the world I'd always been so you know speaking sign language and being with my family and there was always this expectation that I would go into sort of the disabilities sort of community and working um, but then you know I went into this art school and I thought you know what um, I want to try something that is completely different and um, and so I did make a very conscious decision um, I'm also not a shy and retiring wallflower so I also knew that I wanted to be a director almost immediately um, and it's it's been a really good path for me because I um, it's that creative side it's that sort of intellectual side but at the end of the day and I also have a, a business degree I have an MBA um, it really is about running a um, an organization but for the public and you need to be able to do budgets and manage staff and deal with the politics of everything communications so it's a really good balance for me my my father was a very successful businessman so I had a bit of that and my mother was a so social worker, psychologist, so that's kind of fatal, the two of those together. So, yeah. So I think in, in one context or another, I think all of us can sometimes feel like we're outsiders in a world. Um, and I think art is one of those places where it's a very insular community. It's very abstruse content sometimes. It's just very difficult to maybe understand what's going on. You look at a painting and can get overwhelmed. And I'm just curious how you began navigating that because you kind of did start a little later, 15, 16, starting to get into art. How have you navigated that and, and that insularity in the art world? Art is definitely a club and there is absolutely a language. And I think, um, just to move on a little bit from your question, I mean, you certainly go through sort of the steps of learning, you know, as I said in the dark, names and faces and terms like cubism and fauvism and impressionism and all of that. But um, I actually think that the job I'm in now, which is about portraiture, is, in, is very approachable, very mm -hmm. egalitarian, right, because it's a face. And uh, for most of us, we go through our lives from immediately um, seeing uh, somebody's face, uh, a parent or someone, you, a loved one. And um, we navigate the world by looking at other people and we judge ourselves um, sometimes very harshly against what we see in terms of faces. But it's a very approachable art form. And I think this is actually what makes the portrait gallery so popular because you don't have to know any of that, those isms. You just see someone, you think, well, who's that? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting person. Before we get into a little bit more specifically your tenure at the National Portrait Gallery, um, one of the stories that stuck out from reading about you a bit is the fact that you actually started out as a completely unpaid um, art curator and historian when you were in Philadelphia, your, one of your first jobs in the US. And for many of us, especially if you're interested in the arts, oftentimes that is the position we're asked to be in. For you, it was a visa issue, and for us, we just might be 20 and nobody wants to pay us yet. <laughs> so could you tell, tell us a little bit about what it was like to be there and be sending your whole self to a position that wasn't paid and maybe had no guarantee that it would turn into something paid? Right, so my story was that, um, you know, I've I uh, been married uh, for 30 years now, and my husband decided he wanted to come to America and do his PhD here, and um, I came across, we had had our first child, 
and um, I couldn't work. I didn't have a visa. And so I did, my mother did for me what uh, she had had done for her by her mother. Um, I was actually born in Nigeria, um, Dutch parents, very complicated. Um, enough to say that she sent a little bit of money to say, you know, here's some money for you to do something, go out for a date with your husband or do something. Well, I spent it by paying um, another person to look after my children so I could volunteer at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And I did that for about a year. And then uh, finally I could actually work. And I said, guess what? I can work. And three days later I had a job. So going on from that, we do actually have a pretty rigorous um, internship program. In fact, we've just signed an MOU with uh, Claremont McKenna at the Portrait Gallery. We're taking interns as well. Um, we very much want to be paying interns, so um, the day of unpaid internship, I hope, is going away. But uh, still, I will say that we have um, the, the museum, and I know the Smithsonian, of which we are part, often ends up um, giving jobs to people because you get to know them, right? Um, I would say that the thing for interns is that, um, you know, it really is, uh, you know, come on time, uh, work late, become indispensable, be a nice person. Um, I had a board member once that said um, they need to be, you know, pass the good egg test. Um, but it's a, it's a great uh, way for uh, you as a student to work out if this is really what you want to do, but also for us as employers to say, oh, we really like them. Let's, let's see if we can keep that person. So um, it's a really good thing. Something that really doesn't exist in Australia in any way mm. near the same, actually. It's a very American thing. That's fascinating. Yeah. So transitioning now to your time in Washington, D.C., I, I think one quote stood out to me, that, um, something you said earlier, is that portraiture is political in nature. And I think it's very fitting that you, do, you are running this museum in Washington, D.C., which is the seat of our federal politics. Um, how have you kind of negotiated that and um, all these political influences? You know, D.C. is known as kind of the town of politics, and that's really what is bringing a lot of these folks in. How do you navigate that with art, and, and how do you see that all playing out? Well, I'd love to say that I'd thought this through, but I hadn't really when I came to the Smithsonian. Um, you know, as you said, I started on April Fool's Day, go figure, <laughs> my first day, uh, 2013. And like most people, I think you you sort of think, well, you know, do I believe in the mission? Do I, in my case, uh, like the collection? Do I like living in Washington? So check, check, check. I never once for a minute really thought about the fact that this was the Smithsonian. And people truly believe that the Smithsonian is their museum, which is kind of great, right? And we are free and everyone can come. However, um, they also tell you what they think, um, uh, big time. Um, so uh, we're very different to many other art museums. When you go into an art museum on the label, you'll see the name of the artist and then maybe a little bit about the artwork. In our museum, you see the person who's in the picture, it's the portrait, and then you'll have 140 words in English. We also do everything in Spanish now about their biography. So when I first arrived, I said, who reads all of this? This is exhausting, like this is a lot of reading. Um, well, I soon found out people do read because I would get the letters, right? So, um, you know, David Rittenhouse, um, I'm sure, I'm convinced it's the same person who comes every month to say, this is not a reflecting <coughs> telescope, it's a refracting telescope. Um, and we ended up doing a, read, a label which is like, could you do, it's not a reflecting telescope. But, you know, um, Eisenhower, you know, how dare you say he's cautious on civil rights. Um, we have a lot of these commentaries. Um, and I have had five freedom of information requests. I've um, had someone come after me legally for a decision that was made. Um, I've had a letter uh, written to me from congressmen demanding that we take somebody out of the collection. 
Um, we've had protests, um, none of which I really had thought through when I started the job. And it's, I'd like to think that we're learning. But my approach has always been to say, all right, let's really have this dialogue. So, for example, we had a, a work of art that was on the wall, and someone sent me an email on Friday. It always happens on a Friday. And, you know, and they said, I'm really deeply disturbed about the language in your label. And I knew that by Monday we could have had a group of people marching out the front of the museum or at least making something online. So instead of having a knee-jerk reaction and sort of pulling the work out or taking the label off or whatever, we just put up, it was the first time we did this, another label that says, this label is under contention if you want to join the conversation and, and gave them the Twitter handle. And then I watched it all weekend and I was so disappointed. Nobody even used that. You know, nobody said anything. Um, but then we had two weeks of negotiating with the person who sent us the letter and our curators, and we did change the language of the label so that everybody was happy. So I think the days of um, the museum being this authoritative voice and being the be-all and end-all is completely gone. We don't know everything. Um, curators are biased. As I said, all decisions on portraiture are political. Um, whether it's the artist having an opinion, whether it's the sitter who wants to manipulate their own image in perpetuity, or, if, or whether it's the institution or the donors or whoever's paying for the portrait. Um, so I, I do think that we need to be able to be flexible and change language and listen to people and have a dialogue. Hearing you talk about these multiple levels of dialogue makes me think back to um, my summer visit to the portrait gallery, where I thought one of the most moving exhibits I saw was Unseen. Mm -hmm. um, for people who haven't gotten to see it, the, the general concept is from the founding era, um, there's portraits of people like Thomas Jefferson where they're either sort of slid aside the front canvas, like a curtain, or torn through, moved away in some way, and behind the, the main or the front uh, portrait uh, feature is uh, a slave and or other African-American who was kind of integral to the development and life of the founder or political figure on, on front. So behind Thomas Jefferson is Sally Hemings, I believe. And mm -hmm. I was so curious to see an exhibit that 30 years ago probably could not have um, been shown in the National Portrait Gallery, whether that was something that was contentious or another point of dialogue where people came to you curious about how, how you went about that. It was very deliberate, and it's been a part of a project that I've really um, wanted to do as soon as I stepped into the museum, which is this, we talk about the presence of absence. So um, portraiture has favoured those who could vote, white men who owned land. So ladies, no big surprise, less than 23% of the collection are women, and if you're a person of colour, it's even less so. Um, and so uh, last year was our anniversary. It was 50 years that we've been open to the public and we decided to do the Unseen exhibition with Titus Kafar, is the artist that you're uh, mentioning, and the other artist is Ken Gonzalez Day, who's actually from California. Um, Titus has actually really looked at this idea of, well, um, why do certain people get their portraits in the collection? And the work that you, you are talking about referencing is in fact a very traditionally, he's a, a very good painter, he recreates a painting of Jefferson, but then he actually unhooked it from the canvas and behind him does come an, a, a naked um, a woman of colour. Um, not necessarily Sally Hemings, because she was quite uh, light-skinned and could pass as white, but certainly making the point that behind all, you know, he, he, this was a man who owned his own children. Um, another example was um, Andrew Jackson, 
was a recreation of a very famous portrait of Ralph Earle that was shredded to talk about the Trail of Tears. And we literally redid the Gallery of America's Presidents and we used the word genocide because that's exactly uh, the policies that happened. Um, and we, we, you know, we just say it, call it as it is. Um, the other artist, actually, Ken Gonzalez Day, did a room about lynching. Um, Ken had actually written, uh, done a lot of research about... A lot of people think that lynching was only for African-Americans in the South. There were many Mexican-Americans. His book documents about four, uh, 550 who had, had, had been lynched um, in California and actually the west part of the country. His um, exhibition was actually uh, were historic photos of the lynched, but he had taken the victims out. The bodies were not in those pictures. What is very scary is that when you go into the gallery, what you see are the people who posed. They were the crowds that did the lynching. So they're standing and they're holding the rope. Um, many people would come and have a picnic. They would bring their children. Postcards would be made of the lynched and they would be sent to their families and friends with, with um, sort of a celebration, look what they got. It's a really kind of horrific time of our history. And I should mention in the room that Ken did with us, it was also two people who were Jewish that were lynched. So um, again, sort of mob rule. So to your question was, did we think very hard about this exhibition coming in Washington? Yes, absolutely. We did uh, what we call murder boarding. Um, it's a little bit like Clue, right? You know, was it Professor Plum in the bathroom <laughs> with the... So this, you know, asking a lot of really hard questions. What would be the possible questions that somebody could come to us and say, you know, I have a family member who was lynched, or I'm Mexican-American, or um, you're desecrating the presidents. And we really thought very hard about what were the answers going to be. But we felt it was very much a signal about let's have a talk about history and who gets included. Um, we are not a hall of heroes. There is no moral test to be in the portrait gallery because otherwise, trust me, <laughs> no one would be there. Uh, so um, it, I'm very proud of that exhibition. And we were very ready. Um, and interestingly, it's just closed and we didn't get any negative commentary at all. I was actually kind of surprised. So one quote uh, you've brought up several times that really fascinates me is from Pablo Picasso. And it, the quote is, portraiture is the lie that illustrates the truth. And when I think about portraiture, you think about uh, these exhibits with like unseen and things like that. You think about the inherent subjectivity of portraiture and what are the motivations of the artist, what are the motivations of the subject, everything like that. I know in one interview you mentioned uh, Andrew Jackson's portrait in the National Portrait Gallery was painted by his son-in-law. Um, and his son-in-law definitely had a motivation to make Andrew Jackson look good. Um, Made him look taller, that's or, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Right. So um, I'm, I'm just curious what you think about, uh, do you ever feel that that subjectivity can be so overpowering that maybe the work becomes a work of fiction? And then if so, does that fiction still have a value and, and those pieces still have a value in the National Portrait Gallery? All portraiture is fiction. Um, it's always, even, um, and, you know, even photography, you know, people often think that, oh, it's a photograph and it's real. And we all know, I think we're a little bit more sophisticated to know today that even how you take a photograph or a photograph was, can be manipulated. But even pre-digital, you know, in the Victorian era, they were literally putting dead people back into family photos. So, you know, um, I think of it as a three-legged stool. Um, so on one leg, you have the artist, and the artist would like to sort of uh, have some semblance of control about their artwork and, and their, their you know, painting or sculpture. 
The other leg of the stool is the sitter, and if they're famous, they definitely have a, a very vested interest. So we all know about um, Churchill, for example, who hated his portrait by Sutherland and ended up having it burnt. Um, and then, of course, the other part of the stool is the audience, and I think that's the most interesting. So where the artist and the sitter will eventually die and, and the audience will keep coming and it will always be contemporary because you're standing in front of it in that moment, even if it was done, you know, 200 years ago. Um, and so I, I do think that um, this, the fascinating thing about portraiture is it does change all the time. Um, so, you know, for example, particularly if you have living people, um, so Lance Armstrong, for example, we have him in the collection, and then a couple of years ago he admitted to taking performance-enhancing drugs. So we redo the label, it's still the same portrait, but people think differently of him. And it gives us an opportunity to talk to people about, particularly young people, um, which is my interest, is, is about choice, right? We have um, opportunities to have good choices in life, bad choices, but it's the summation of a life that gets you into the portrait gallery, certainly. And, you know, Lance Armstrong um, underwent a lot of challenges. He had testicular cancer, and, and he also made choices about what he was going to do with his career. I balance that against someone, uh, for example, um, like Hank Aaron, uh, the baseball uh, great, who also had the challenge of um, breaking the colour barrier. Um, and uh, just a very interesting co comparison about two elite sports uh, people and choices that they made. And so, but it always changes, guaranteed. And we're always redoing the information, uh, rewriting labels, and somebody will come in and say, you know, I think this is wrong, or let's change that. So it was very much a dialogue. To think about a portrait that maybe is a bit too new to have been have their uh, descriptions revised so far. Uh, the Obama portraits have mm -hmm. drawn so much attention to the gallery recently, and they've been up for about a year of former President Obama and former First Lady Michelle Obama. And we've hopefully all seen, if not these photos, photos of uh, the two-year-old African-American girl staring in awe up at former First Lady, and lots of other photos of just the huge crowds that they brought in and people just flocking to the gallery almost as a pilgrimage, I believe mm -hmm. you referred to it as the Obama effect. Uh, how has that kind of influenced your excitement about your position and ability to bring so many faces into the door? How do you hope to capitalize on that momentum and how has it been reflecting on just how cool it is to bring in two portraits that have just been commissioned and finished and placed in your gallery? Yes, so we just had the one year anniversary. It was very deliberate. Um, the president and first lady wanted the unveiling on February the 12th, which is Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Um, uh, Barack Obama very much admired Lincoln um, in his swearing in. He actually swore on the Lincoln Bible. Uh, he announced his presidency in Springfield, Illinois. So there's, there's huge ties to that. Um, and it's been extraordinary in that we've doubled attendance. Um, in fact, we were about 1.2 a couple of years ago. We're now at 2.3 million visitors. Uh, that accounts for about 60% of new people have come in because of these pictures. Um, one of the things I've really noticed, and I truly believe that portraiture can change the world, as evidenced by little Parker Curry, who looked at uh, Michelle and said uh, she thought she was a queen, was that if you can't actually um, imagine it, you can't see yourself in that future. And uh, in fact, Parker and another little girl, Reagan, uh, they dressed as uh, Michelle Obama and the artist of Michelle Obama's portrait, Amy Sherald, for Halloween last year. 
And I just, to me, that was, I feel like I'm, um, I'm truly changing the world because these uh, two small little African-American girls think nothing of, you know, being these very powerful uh, women. So it has been extraordinary, but what I've also noticed is that the museum has become more and more a place of gathering and community and conversation. Um, I used to feel really bad that we didn't have audio guides and touch tables and all of the gee whiz fabulous things that many of the other museums these days have. And then I realised that in fact it was probably a good thing because people wanted to talk to each other. And when we unveiled these portraits, people were lining up for hours and hours. And it was kind of extraordinary because we had set up stanchions where you could, if you wanted an uninterrupted view to take a selfie, you would get in the, in the queue to take a picture. But if you just wanted to see the pictures, you could just sort of do a, a walk-by, right? Just speed by the picture. As long as you didn't stop, you could just do a drive-by of the... Nobody wanted to do that. People wanted to line up for hours. And at one point, I saw a couple who I know just live around the corner. I said, why are you here? Um, you can just come back. They're not going anywhere. Like, you know, you, it's going to take you at least an hour before you're getting in front of this picture. And they said, no, we, we really, we love the vibe. We want to be with other people. We want to have this conversation. I've noticed this happening more and more, and not just even with the Obamas. People are coming to see Catherine Hepburn, where we have the Oscars, or Rosa Parks, or Martin Luther King. When somebody passes, we put up their um, portrait on the In Memoriam Wall, uh, so people were queuing up uh, for Aretha Franklin and, and Senator John McCain. We now put out a book, a condolence book, that people can write their, their thoughts and their feelings. And, and so the museum is becoming this place for conversation and shared um, memory, I think. Um, so that's kind of the Obama effect as well. It's just, and they stand for so much, right? They stand for the, the first, um, you know, black first uh, couple. The, the portraits themselves are bright and modern and extraordinary. Um, the, the artists are very hip and timely. Uh, so it's been a pleasure and quite um, just amazing to watch. Could you talk a little bit about the selection process for the artists uh, who did both of these paintings? I know um, you mentioned in 2016, President Obama's last year in office, um, he maybe came to you and, and asked you to put together a list of, of some artists, or how did that, no, how did that all play No, that's out? not how it works. No. So um, what we do is we start talking to the White House um, the, in their final year of office and say, guess what, time to think of, about your portrait. There are actually four portraits made. There is a president and first lady for the White House. They have a collection. Good luck going in there to see it, right? Because they're beautiful. There's a lot of overlap. And there's a set for us where we're open um, every day of the year except for one. So we actually, because it's sort of in our wheelhouse, we create sort of um, folios of different artists, men and women. We also decided um, African-American artists, modern artists, more traditional artists, some from Chicago, some for not. So we sort of tried to have a think about what this particular couple would want to see. We send them on to the White House. Now, the Obamas have been, um, you know, very savvy in art, particularly Michelle Obama. She's, um, she was there at the reopening of the Whitney um, previous to that. Um, we know that they had hung very um, sort of uh, modern uh, forward pictures in, in the White House during their tenure. Um, so what they decided to do was invite six of the artists that we had given them as a selection for an interview. And they would pick um, either one to do all four or two to do all of them. But they ended up doing four artists for four pictures. Uh, 
the story that I've been told, and they actually did talk about it at the unveiling, was um, with Amy Sherald, who ended up doing Michelle. So she comes to the Oval Office, and it's pretty intimidating. They're both sitting there, and she comes in. And Michelle tells the story about seeing Amy, who's very tall and statuesque, and thinking, oh, you are, like, amazing. This amazing, you know, very um, pulled-together woman comes in. And Amy sits down on the couch, and she says to President Obama, sir, I know that we're, you're considering me for either of your portraits, but then turns to Michelle Obama and said, but I really hope I can do yours. <laughs> and, and the story that this is told by um, the president, he said at that point he, must, he just could have just disappeared into the cushions or something <laughs> because um, it was like girl power. And there was very much this energy between the two of them. They've become very good friends. I um, mean, you, you can tell this in the portraits. Um, President Obama very much did want Kehinde Wiley to be one of the artists, so he did say to us, please put Kehinde in there. Mm -hmm. And um, they, have, they share history. They both have um, fathers who are their, um, who were absent in their lives. They've both got ties back to Africa. Um, they both felt that there was a lot of synergy there. And uh, it's been fun to sort of hear them talk about that relationship. You can tell when a, an artist and a sitter don't get along, you don't get a great portrait. So we've got uh, to close up uh, with this portion here, but then we'll turn it over to you for your questions, and we hope uh, you have them. Um, but the last question we ask all of our guests on every podcast is, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give to students, who many of whom are here, in defining success for themselves? I'm going to go with the first one. Um, the advice I would give to students, and I give this to everyone, is um, you have to be in charge of your future. Don't expect that it's going to come landing at your feet. So, um, and you can never be... Uh, no, no is the first step to yes, right? So don't get discouraged. It made me think of... We interviewed Sonia Sotomayor, and we asked her the question, what, should, what advice could you give a young person today? And she said, don't let fear get in your way. So I would say to everybody, um, you know, think about what you want to do and you go out there and for every 20 jobs that you apply for, one might come through. For every 50 crazy ideas you have, one might be brilliant. Um, and you just need to keep trying. And in fact, you, you get better um, at your... Failure is, is never a failure, right? It's actually a step to learning until you get to the right place. So. Um, I would encourage everyone to think of this as a journey, and it's not the end that matters, it's the journey that matters. So that's, that's my advice. Wonderful. Thank you. Great, great advice, and we are now very excited to turn it over to the audience for the first time in Free Food for Thought History to ask some of the questions yourselves. Hi, great. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, this is really interesting talk. Um, my question is about, um, in your position, uh, what is the most difficult question or the most difficult decision that you've had to make uh, as director? Well, we're in the middle of identity politics constantly, right? And um, often we'll get uh, questions about how we present somebody or whether we should change the, you know, the historical narrative about someone. Um, it, it wasn't a particularly difficult decision, but I'll give you an example of a decision that we made where we have a portrait of Marian Anderson in our Struggle for Justice gallery. And above it was a very rousing quote by Susan B. Anthony, something like, you know, we'll all get together and change the world. And it had been actually above this portrait, these quotes written on the wall for well over a decade. 
until someone wrote to me and said, I'm deeply offended because Susan B. Anthony was actually racist. And so we, we really sat down and we looked at that and we said, you know what, she's right. And um, Susan B. Anthony was, was furious when um, men were able to get the vote. She said, how, how dare those um, black men can get the vote before us white educated women. And, uh, and so whilst you know, uh, women's suffrage and, um, uh, and voting generally marched uh, hand in hand, there was a moment where it diverged depending on who was doing the agitation. So we took the quote off the wall and we put up a, a different quote. So that's an example of where we really do sit down and say, let's really look into this. And um, it's kind of extraordinary. It'd been up there for a long time, and it was the first time that someone had really come to us, and it made us think about what we were doing. What's your favorite portrait in the gallery? Um, perhaps one that's maybe more overlooked by the general public. Um, I have a, a favorite. It's called The Men of Progress. It's 19 uh, white men who are the inventors of America. It's done in 1963, I'm going to say, by Schussel. What I love about it is actually what's not in the picture. So um, you actually find all of these inventors. So there's uh, McCormick with his Reaper, and there's a little... Uh, when you registered your invention, you had to have a little model. Um, so there's a little reaper and there's a singer sewing machine and Colt with his revolver. It's interesting that the gun was considered a, an important invention back then. Um, and even at the last minute, they put in um, uh, Ericsson, who had actually created the submersible um, uh, boat to help win the war for the Union. None of these people met. They were all completely fictional, again. They were all put into this sort of 17th century group picture. They're all facing front. And at the back, actually, there's a painting. In the painting, it's a very meta moment of the sort of the patron saint of American invention, which is, um, Frank, uh, is Ben Franklin. Question I like is, well, where were the women? Where were the people of color? Like, this is a very interesting art as a lie that illustrates the truth. This was a painting that was done to demonstrate um, America's um, technological advancement. There are a lot of gaps in this picture. And of course, I did my homework and found out that there were, were about 1,200 patents submitted by women at, around that time. And one of them was Margaret Knight, who, thanks to her, we have the paper bag making machine. Where would we be without the paper bag? <laughs> but we, we don't have a portrait of her. We have the drawing that she submitted for that invention because she was a woman, right? And she, was a, and she just wasn't considered important enough. So, I like that picture because of what it doesn't have as well as what it does have. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm very interested in your ideas that portrait labels should contain more information. Because in some ways it seems to me that's adding an, another filter um, in how the viewer sees the portrait. So that made me think, well then in, the, in terms of the realm of recent um, portraiture, specifically living people, um, how do you decide what information should be put on a label and should it include information on both the artist and the sitter? Should it include the artist and the sitter's social or political or views on anything? I, I think that I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Yes, absolutely. Um, we take great pride in our labels. It's really hard to write about you know, President Nixon in 140 words, for example. Um, and I think one of the benefits is now we are adding more um, opportunities with um, apps that you can get more information. But uh, we do put information about the artist. Um, if anything, we've sort of 
um, privileged more the biography of the sitter than the artist. But most recently, we've had um, a number of artists come into the press because of their um, biographies, for example, and we talk about them as well. As I said, there's no moral test to be in the portrait gallery. So, um, and we try to be very honest about um, the artist or the sitter and, and their backgrounds, and we will change it as, as um, information changes. So we take a lot of pride in, in those uh, labels. And uh, we know that people like them because when we were trying to work out what we were doing with Spanish and English, it's a big commitment. We put them side by side. We didn't want to privilege English above Spanish. So we said side by Well, that takes up more wall space, right? So our design team was like, well, this is going to have an impact on how we present just purely in terms of real estate on the wall. So the early version of this was we had a brochure with the labels printed in Spanish that was free for everyone. And our security guards came to us and said, what just happened? We had 36 complaints over one Sunday that all of the people who wanted the labels in English didn't have a booklet. And I said, but, but it's on the wall. And they're like, so what we know is people wanted to take it home. So we had created a problem for ourselves, but we also learned something. We was like, all right, well, that was a really bad idea. Let's rethink that. So people like um, reading them and, um, as I said, they will write and, and correct us all the time, which is actually kind of great. Thank you. I have a couple of questions, and please feel free to answer the one uh, that is most interesting to you. But one, uh, what is the definition of a portrait, and how is it changing in today's digital world? What is a portrait going to look like 25, 50 years from now in the world of selfies and new medium. Is that a portrait? Is it not a portrait? Where are we going? And two, sitting here listening to it made me think of, um, you know, I'm just wondering about museums in general. What are your biggest challenges sitting at the National Portrait Gallery today um, and in the landscape of museums in general in the United States? Okay, I will <laughs> start with the first question. What is a portrait? So. I think of it in a, in a couple of different ways. Firstly, the collection. So um, the direction given to us by Congress in 1962, we were open, the, the building opened in 68, was to collect men and women who've made an impact on America. So good and bad, we have Al Capone and, and, and John Wilkes Booth, for example. Um, it has to be somewhat representational, otherwise kind of what's the point? And it has to be a good work of art. And we actually would prefer it if the artist and the sitter have met. Um, in, interestingly, in the history of the gallery, we were not allowed to acquire photographs until 1976, um, because in fact, um, the Library of, actually, I think it was the Library of Congress had said that they thought there was too much competition to have two institutions collecting photographs. Um, we were not allowed to collect living people until 2001. You had to be really dead. You had to be <laughs> 10 years dead before, which meant that if you also said, we think there's a value with the artist and the sitter having met, there's a whole lot of people that are just never going to get a portrait done. So a good one for that is um, Martin Luther King Jr., who was unfortunately killed before he ever sat for a, a, a portrait. We have lots of fabulous photographs of him, but we don't have an, an official portrait. So there's a, there's a very narrow definition that we use for the collection. Having said that, because of our history, our fraught history of portraiture, which has left many people out, 
what you do then is try and make up, this kind of segues into your second question, is how do you actually, you know, we are um, a Smithsonian, it's free to come, this is your museum. My wish is that in fact, when you come in, you can identify with somebody there, or you can have a dialogue with somebody like little Parker Curry could. So it's in the programming, it's in the exhibitions, and I take a pretty liberal view of a portrait. So for example, we had an exhibition on images of soldiers post 9-11 with contemporary artists, and one of the um, rooms was by an artist called Ashley Gilbertson called Bedrooms of the Fallen. There were no people in those pictures. There were large panoramic photographs of bedrooms of soldiers who had been killed in Iraq or Afghanistan, and the families couldn't bear to pack up their rooms. And the portraits actually were sometimes taken five years after that that soldier had died. But when you looked at the pictures, there were teddy bears on the bed, there were Little League posters, there were... um, You got a sense of that not only were they very young, but who this person was. And I think that's as much a portrait as anything else. Um, I also think it's really important going to the question of museums is that we actually, you know, people are messy and life is messy and history is not linear. It's really challenging and difficult. So I'm a big one for making people cry. (laughs) Um, I value people having emotions. It's one of the few places I think where you can have a sense of communitas, and I do write about this recently in The Atlantic, um, this idea that we can come together and share who we are, you know, humanitas having communitas together. And I think that's what museums need to be doing because, in fact, there's we're such a fragmented society now. We need to have somewhere where we can really talk to each other, and sometimes um, a portrait certainly can be that bridge. Absolutely. So unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today, but please join me one more time in thanking Kim for joining us. Thank you so much, Kim.